we, we're kind of continuing. We, we're not in a series, but we are in a theme. And as I thought about the theme, the theme has struck me like a word in season. Paul tells Timothy, you've got to preach in season, out of season. And sometimes you just open God's word and you teach it without worrying about the, the reference point that we're in. But it just seems to me that we're looking again and again at things that God is pointing to that we need to keep in mind and, uh, and that are particularly pertinent right now in our uh, kind of circumstances and situation. Last week, we were at a river of ministry, a flow of ministry that Jesus uh, points to and says that when we believe in him, out of our innermost being, John 7, rivers of living water begin to flow. And we considered, A, what that might mean for us in terms of coming to the place of actual faith in Jesus and wrestling with some of the challenges that we find in reaching the point of faith, but then also opening ourselves to experience this flow of God's life through us. By this he meant the Holy Spirit, who at that stage had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And we begin to see this Trinitarian flow in the life of Jesus. So uh, thank you. Uh, to Josh Lucht for reminding us of Trinity. And in a sense, we see in Jesus this natural flow of the ministry of the Trinity in which the ministry of Jesus is dependent upon and reveals always the nature of the Father by the Spirit. Now, we're not going to go too much more into that. but I do want to, in a sense, just tease out a few more ideas as we look at this flow of ministry in the life of Jesus and how it speaks to us today in our challenges. In our prayer meeting this morning, and even as Bevan led us, we recognize for many of us, we're having to lean into 1 Peter 5 verse 7, cast your cares upon the Lord because he cares for you. And and we're just being invited to go to God. It says, humble yourself before the Lord, he'll lift you up, and then cast your cares on him. And we're learning in grief, in sorrow, in sickness, um, and, and yes, in other times, and not everybody's going through that, but we're finding ourselves leaning into God. So a couple of weeks ago, we prayed for someone critically ill in our service, reaching, trusting, praying, turning to God, and yet by that Friday, we were doing their memorial service. And yet the very next Sunday, we find ourselves again in a place of prayer, praying for someone critically ill in hospital, turning to God. And we are so grateful that uh, Janine Ventura recovered, even as we were praying for her. And finding faith to trust God again in the face of disappointment and grief and loss, and to allow the flow of ministry to continue in our lives, is a very real challenge that we face right now. And so how do we look at this? And one of the passages I I want us to look at is in Matthew chapter 21. And Jesus has just entered Jerusalem to the shouts of acclaim as Messiah. We read from verse 4 that this is a fulfillment of what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter Zion, see your king comes to you. 
gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey, the colt, they placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on it. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer. But you are making it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him, at the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him. And Jesus replied, have you never read From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth praise. Quoting Psalm And then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. So we see this dramatic entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. People are proclaiming him to be the son of David, to be the Messiah. People are throwing their garments down. Children are waving palm branches. Jesus is coming humble and riding on the donkey. What Matthew doesn't record, but Luke records, is that part of this time, Jesus just begins to weep. Because although the city is all sort of like revved up, he says, you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. That's another whole kind of discussion and insight. But Jesus comes in this humble way, in this surprising way. He comes not with the an army of soldiers, but with an army of children. And he comes not on a stallion, but on a baby donkey. And he comes not shouting victory, but weeping tears of sorrow for the city that he's entering. And then he goes to the temple, as it were, to his father's house. Remember when he was a little boy, and Mary and Joseph had taken him for that first encounter after his bar mitzvah, and, and he stays behind in Jerusalem to be in his father's house doing his father's business. So he goes, as it were, to his father's house. And he finds that the place over time has been distorted and reduced to a religious trading station. They're livestock dealers and they're selling animals and doves for those who were coming to make sacrifices. Now, especially those who were part of the Jewish diaspora. You see, Jews were scattered throughout the known world. And, and they couldn't really travel with their offerings. So they had to travel in, and then Jerusalem had, for example, near Bethlehem, 
The lambs near Bethlehem were specifically raised to be slaughtered uh, at the temple. And so you, you couldn't just arrive with your own offering. You had to go and get a special one. Now, this wasn't commanded in Scripture anywhere. This had become the temple practice. But, oh, there was another catch. You couldn't just buy an offering for God with just any currency. The temple had its own Bitcoin. And so now you had to go and make an exchange. And so there was a whole enterprise of people making money off the exchange. So you had to buy an offering that you couldn't bring, using money that you couldn't bring. And so this whole thing had become a scam. And Jesus looks at this and he burns with indignation. And he, and he walks in and he literally turns the tables. He scatters their money, he drives out the animals and their traders and their profiteering, and he rebukes them from God's word. And you're thinking that this place of refuge, this place of safety, this place of God's presence. And if you go back to uh, Jeremiah chapter 7, where he says, you've made it a den of robbers. Very clearly in that context, he says, but you're, you're committing adultery. You're practicing extortion. You're stealing and cheating from people. And the safest place you think is the temple. And so you've turned what was a place of refuge for those who were in need and vulnerable into a place of refuge for the criminals. <laughs> you know, robbers have dens. They have places that they can escape to. No one actually says anything. I mean, it's quite startling at this stage in the story. It just, Jesus does it and, and nobody responds. And then the irony. As the temple is cleared of this defiling presence, something else that the people would have objected to in the temple precinct would have been the blind and the lame. They were regarded as not worthy of being in God's presence. But they come to Jesus. They would have been made to sit outside and beg at the gates. But Jesus receives them in this place of God's presence. And from him flows the grace and the power of healing. And as their lives are transformed, the little children begin to shout for joy because the lame are walking and the blind can see. And this is when the teachers of the law and the priests become indignant and they react. Now, I want you to think for a moment. I mean, wait a minute. So one moment this place resembles a stock exchange. And a, I mean, it's this noisy, busy thing. And everyone seems okay with that. And the vulnerable people are excluded and left outside. And then this place becomes a place of healing and ministry and rejoicing and the shouts of praise from children. I mean, it's so different. That's a question. Where did the difference come from? How is this place of healing and praise different to what had gone before? And how did Jesus know to bring that kind of presence and difference into 
his father's house? The answer is very clear. As you look at the life of Jesus, it's because Jesus knows the father. Jesus knows the father's heart. Jesus knows what the father feels and sees and thinks when he sees people who are needy and broken and excluded. And he knows what goes on in the father's heart when sin is justified. And so he refers in one of the scriptures, and he quotes multiple in his encounters on this day, to Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 7. You see, God's plan has always been for salvation to be universal, to go across everywhere. And so verse 6 in Isaiah 56 is, Foreigners will come and bind themselves to the Lord, and, and these I will bring to my holy mountain, and I will give them, and here's the quote, joy in my house of prayer. My father's house will be a house of prayer. And the original text is it's going to be full of joy. It's going to be this place of praise. And it's going to be a place for the people you think are excluded. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, is how the passage finishes. And Isaiah 35, your God will come. He will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like the deer. And the mute tongue will shout for joy. And this is what's happening in the presence of God. You did not recognize the time when God came to you. Isaiah 35 continues, Then the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Sorrow and sighing will run away. Guys, Jesus could clear the temple, heal the lame, open blind eyes, release heaven's presence and power. He could transform this place of cruel, corrupt exploitation into a house of laughing, shouting, celebration of the Father's love because he was in the flow of that same love. Jesus knew what filled the Father's presence. And, you know, we have that same vision and picture every time we pray the Lord's presence, uh, the Lord's prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That which fills the presence of God. We're asking God, Lord, bring it into our space, into our broken space of cares and concerns and sorrows and heartaches. Father, may that presence of hope and healing enter now. And there's this tension. We live recognizing we don't always have it. But we recognize also that as we surrender to God's presence, even when we don't have answers, we find comfort and strength. And the interesting thing as you look at the life of Jesus, he makes it very clear that he needs this same love from the Father even as he does ministry. He relies on the Father. He tells us he does not do this by himself. In his humanity, he allows himself to live 
out of relationship with the Father by the ministry and power of the Holy Spirit. He too is in the flow of ministry. And we read in Matthew chapter 3 that Jesus comes to, uh, from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. And in verse 14, John says, no, 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 no. I need to be baptized by you. I want you to immerse me in what you have. And Jesus says, no, it's proper for all righteousness. And Jesus wanted to identify with sinners. And it's interesting in that moment of identifying with the people who need to repent, the Spirit comes on Jesus. And we read this, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, landing on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son. Whom I love, I am so pleased with him. This is my son. I love him. I am pleased with him. I want to talk about some of the things that transform ministry from being something we need to exploit to being something that sees the love of God flow through us into situations that plainly are too much for us. The first is identity. God comes and he speaks to the identity of Jesus. And it's interesting for Jesus now, out of his innermost being, is flowing the stream of ministry that comes first from knowing that he is loved by the Father who calls him his son, and names him and owns him as his own. And the father speaks to him. You see, one of our deepest needs and identity doesn't just flow from our thoughts about ourselves. We know this. Identity flows from our connections with the people who are most important in our lives. You know, if we get this wrong, we end up looking at ministry as a way to give us identity and status. And we are very dangerous people then. Because instead of being able to give the kind of healing love that is present in Jesus, we are desperately trying to make people change so that we can look better. Change becomes something that we want to force on people instead of inviting people in. People, <laughs> yeah. God does not love people because they repent. People repent because they discover that God loves them. People repent because they discover God loves them. But it's interesting, Jesus in dealing with identity, identity asks the question, who am I and where do I belong? But it also asks the question, am I okay? What's my vindication? And the father speaks over Jesus. I am pleased with you. He lives under the pleasure of the father's delight. The father isn't grudgingly acknowledging a relationship with the son. We have to recognize that in our sin, we have fallen short 
of living in the delight, the glory of God. But we read, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so our identity and our righteousness is also given to us in Jesus. Jesus never died for his own sin. He died for ours and invites us into that relationship that Romans 8 describes for us that those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. But the second thing that becomes obvious is not only identity, but now security. You see, when you're trying to provide for yourself and you start using ministry or whatever it is, you're going to exploit people. (laughs) Just like these money changers, just like these teachers of the law and the priests, they've got their whole system running so that they can provide and so that they can even protect themselves from hardship and difficulty. The interesting thing is Jesus comes without soldiers. He comes on a donkey. He comes completely vulnerable. His bodyguards are kids (laughs) singing praise. Why? Because he is deeply trusting in the protection and the provision of his heavenly father. And this frees him from wanting to exploit any form of ministry for self-benefit. Because for him, ministry is to be in the flow of the father by the power of the spirit. It's got nothing to do with taking care of his own needs. Then we see how Jesus flows into wisdom and guidance out of this relationship by the Father. I mean, the answers that he gives again and again, and as you read through these latter parts of Matthew, and you can also look at the end of Luke, which has these long descriptions, people coming to prod Jesus and ask him, you know, about marriage or after, after death or about paying taxes to Caesar or about, you know, a bunch of different things. And all they're wanting to do is, is, is trip him up, to test him, to see him fail. And again and again, it says they were stunned by his wisdom. He's carrying this understanding, this discernment. And so we have identity given to us by God. We have security. We have wisdom. And then so obvious in the text is this extraordinary authority and power. And that authority and that power did not come out of his own nature. It was deeply out of the flow of ministry Jesus was modeling to the rest of us. Now, of course, Jesus was fully divine. We just heard it in the children's talk. But he never chose to operate outside of the flow of the Trinity. He always chose to reveal those things as something that was imparted to him by the others, in, uh, by the Father and the Spirit. And so what we find is that when we 
faced by challenges and sorrow and difficulty, or even things that are patently wrong, the challenge to ask ourselves is, what of the Father's nature is being revealed in my response? And to invite people into that same encounter and dependence, to that same identity, security, wisdom, and power. And so in a sense, Jesus enters this place which seemingly had become completely devoid of God's presence. For those few brief moments, creates literally a promise and a picture of heaven. If you go to the end of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22, you'll see the same themes present in the book of Isaiah, demonstrated in the life of Jesus, displayed again through the book of Acts, now reaching their fulfillment as we come to the climax of the story at the end of God's word. So what is this for us? It's not just a description. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to step into this same community that flowed in the life of Jesus. And he invites us to see it flow through us. God has not denied us identity. He has not denied us his protection and his provision and his security. He has not denied us his wisdom and his guidance, and he is not denying us his enabling power if we will let him work in us and through us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you look to each of us, and just as you spoke over the life of your son, So you long to affirm for those who have believed in Jesus that they are yours and they can trust you. Lord, forgive us if we've misused your house, misused your name, misused ministry in any way. And Father, today we ask... Won't you pick us up and carry us to that river? For Jesus, it was the Jordan. And in that symbolic, prophetic act, your presence came. Your love came. Your voice came. Your spirit came. And Lord, we recognize that we need a fresh release of the same realities in our lives. Lord, for our own sake, but also for the sake of the world. So maybe just sit quietly and say, Father, I receive your love. I receive your words.
I receive your presence. I receive your spirit. Thank you, Jesus, that you promised your spirit will be with us forever. Another comforter. Thank you that we can rely on you. Amen.